0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Bible in the pew in front of you. This morning, we're going to be in John 17, verses 20 through 23. In the Black Pew Bibles, that will be on page 903. I told you that we would be going through John 17 in three sermons. This is the third sermon. I lied. Had to slow it down for the last third. We're going to be splitting it up into two more sermons this morning and next week. Starting in John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. Through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It is completely and utterly sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Father God, I need your help to speak your word this morning. I am a broken vessel. Your word is glory. Help me not to get in the way. Help the, the brilliant light of the glory of your word to shine through even me into the hearts and minds of your people this morning. Father God, help us to be changed, to not walk out of here trusting in ourselves or in this world, but trusting in you, believing that this prayer that your son Jesus prayed to you 2,000 years ago is efficacious, that it has come to pass, that you have answered yes with joy for our sake. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lineage matters. Political lineage, ethnic lineage, ideological. We humans love to argue about questions of lineage. Who is the legitimate heir of whom? The offspring, the descendant. The concept of lineage is often employed as a means of discrediting our opponent's ideas. Some politician says something that we don't like or believe in or agree with, and we say that's not what the founding fathers believed. And what we're saying there is your intellectual lineage is invalid, and therefore so is your idea. An ardent belief in the rights of geographical lineage can lead to wars and atrocities. Adolf Hitler And his mad grab for Western Europe was, at least in part, rooted in his belief that the German people were the rightful owners of the Sudetenland. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is largely, in the the mind of Vladimir Putin, justified by a belief in an ethnic and political lineage, that of the Ukraine. Writing a 5,000-word essay posted on the Kremlin's website, Vladimir Putin says, we are one people, and we always have been. Or consider the history of Islam, a history of division between two factions, the Sunni and the Shia. The Sunni-Shia divide is rooted in the question of lineage. Should the caliphate, that is the, the, the ruling of Islam itself, be based on Merit per the Sunnis or based on the ethnic lineage of the Prophet Muhammad per the Shia. This impulse to establish lineage, though often misguided conceptually and even more often misapplied practically, is fundamentally a correct. Impulse. Lineage does matter. We must be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because some people place too much emphasis on lineage or have emphasized the wrong kind of lineage for their evil purposes doesn't mean that lineage doesn't matter at all. Consider, just for example, the genealogies in Scripture, like the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, which sets out to establish the line of Christ in Abraham, the lineage of Jesus from his ministry all the way back to Father Abraham. This lineage is both accurate and important. Lineage matters. It even matters in the church. Any church that claims to be a true church of Jesus Christ must be able to establish its lineage From the present day, all the way back to Christ himself. Well, how have Christian churches sought to do that through the ages? I'll give you two examples. Two wrong examples. The first would be that of the Landmark Baptists. The Landmark Baptists are a group of Southern, Independent Baptist Churches who believe that every true, true church should be able to trace its lineage back to the apostles by way of Baptist polity. How the church is run according to how, ba- and I'm, of whom I am the foremost. They even have their own charts, you know. What churches between this day and all the way back to Jesus have done Baptist stuff the right way? Then, more egregiously, we have the Roman Catholics. Who trace their lineage back to the apostles through the succession of bishops from the present day all the way back to the supposed first pope, the Apostle Peter. The landmarks, the landmarkists are confused. The Roman Catholics, dangerously confused. And so we must ask how does a church establish its true? lineage, without making these kinds of errors? Well, I think the answer is found in this morning's text. Look at verse 20 with me. Jesus, in his final prayer to the Father, the high priestly prayer, is praying for his disciples and he says, I do not ask for these only, that is, the immediate 11 disciples with him who will go on to serve as apostles, I don't ask for them only, but also For those who will believe in me through their word. That is the key phrase, through their word. In this phrase, for the third time, through their word, Jesus establishes the lineage of the true church. The succession of true churches is not a succession of Baptist polity or of popes or of councils but rather a succession of the word of God. Wherever the word of God is proclaimed and believed and defended and obeyed, there you have a true church composed of true disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, you should consider verse 20 in light of verse 8. Let's go back to a verse that we've already considered. Verse 8. Jesus says, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. Jesus says this word that the disciples believe that they're going to give to other people for them to believe that they're going to give to other people for them to believe. Jesus says that is a word that I received from you, Father. So what you're seeing here is a succession of the word of God from eternity's past all the way down to our present day. This is what true succession looks like. The word is from the Father given to the Son. Then the Son gives the word to his apostles, and then his apostles who are sent out under his authority, give his word to those who will believe in it. And then they are commissioned to go and give the word to others who will believe in it. And so on and so forth, on down the line for 2,000 years until here you are this morning, sitting in this, wo- in this room, having believed in that same eternal word given from the Father. Consider our local church. The reason why Sixth Avenue Community Church is a true church It's not because we are a quickly growing church. We're not. We're a glacially growing church. It is not due to anything pertaining to our building or to our pristine moral behavior. Or it's not owing to the bloodline of our pastor. We are a true church because we have received the true word. We believe the word. We preach the word. We defend the word. We, to the best of our ability by God's grace, obey the word. And if that ever changes, the Lord Jesus will remove his lampstand from the church, which is, in the book of Revelation, just a symbol for the Lord Jesus removing his his power, his presence, his glory, his authority from a church, and therefore taking the the mark of authenticity away from a church. That's what Jesus will do to us. Now listen, if Jesus does that, that doesn't mean that services will shut down the next Sunday, right? Right? the building will still be standing. There will probably still be someone in the pulpit preaching. Maybe he'll take the pulpit out and put a cool stand with, you know, preaching from an iPad. Just kidding. You can preach from an iPad. It's fine. But anyways, they'll keep going. The pastor will preach. People will continue to congregate. But even if you have a building and a bunch of people inside of a building and someone calling himself a pastor who leads the church in that building, that does not mean that it is a true church. If it doesn't have the word, it is not a church. We will merely resemble a church. Have you guys ever found the the shedding of the cicada carcass after they sort of slough it off? I found one in my driveway recently. It was incredible. I mean, it looked exactly Like a cicada, you pick it up, there's nothing there. That is what a church is like without the word of God. This morning's verses teach us that the spread of the true church is really just about the spread of God's word. Just consider the book of Acts, where we see what the answering of Jesus' prayers look like in real time. In the book of Acts, we are never told, never, never, That the church grows. We are told in the book of Acts that the word of God spreads. Listen to Acts chapter 6. I'm just going to give you one example. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God continued to spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem grew rapidly. The word spreads. Those who believe it become disciples, and then they come together and they form something called a church. But the emphasis is never on the growth of the church. The emphasis is on the spreading of the word out to disciples who receive the word, and then they come together and they do form something called a church. The reason why Luke writes like this and the apostles talk like this is because they learned this theology from their master, Jesus. So here in John 17, as Jesus is praying for the protection of the church and the unity of the church, he is not concerned primarily with any particular denomination or parachurch ministry, right? Sometimes that's how we tend to think, right? We tend to equate the true church composed of true disciples with the word of God. We tend to equate that with the denominational structure, As helpful as denominational structures may be. And then what happens? That denominational structure begins to crumble like everything in this world, you know, tainted by sin. And then we start to panic and we begin to fear. We think, oh no, the church is crumbling. No, the church is not crumbling. Augustine interacting with Jerome in the fall of Rome, you know, 1600 years ago. Jerome was petrified Rome is falling, Rome is falling, what are we going to do? The holy city is collapsing, what will the church do? Augustine writes back and says, this is not the church that's collapsing, it's just a city. Congregations may come and go, you shouldn't even equate your local church necessarily with God's true church. Congregations may come and go. Parachurch ministries will manifest and then dissipate. Denominational structures will blossom and then they will die. And as helpful as any of these ministries may be, their survival is nowhere guaranteed by scripture. It is nowhere promised by God. The continuance of, I'll just take the largest denomination in the United States, the the largest faithful denomination, I should add, the continuance of the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, is not promised in Scripture. They do a lot of good, and I hope that they persevere. But their continuance is not promised. The survival of Grace to You ministries with John MacArthur and Nine Marks ministries with Mark Dever and Desiring God ministries with John Piper, their survival is not guaranteed by God. I hope that they do persevere. The only thing that scripture promises us is that the one true church of Jesus Christ, composed of all the disciples who have received the word of God by faith, that is the only thing that is guaranteed to survive because Jesus prayed that it would. Now let's go back and read verse 20 again. There's something else I want us to see here. Back in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize that the only way for men to be saved is if they believe in the word. The word of Christ, the word of God, the word of the gospel which means that the only way a church can grow, the only way that we can produce more disciples is if we communicate the word. Listen, as important as good works are to adorn the word that we preach, if we start getting our priorities mixed up and we start focusing more on good works than the good word, true disciples will not be found. The word of God will not be spread. We have got to be communicators of the word because the only way that the world will be saved is by the word. There has never been, brothers and sisters, anyone who has ever been saved apart from the word. If you're here today and you're a Christian, the only reason why you are saved is because you heard the word of God. Maybe you read it in a book. Maybe you were at a church camp. Maybe you heard it in a Sunday morning sermon or a Bible study or on a podcast. Or maybe, you know, it was balloon dropped in. I don't know how it happened, but you heard the word, you read the word, you, you, and then you believed in it. And the only way for anyone else to be saved is to believe in the word. Now, as, as we wrap up point number one, which did I even tell you guys that this is point number one? Ah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You don't need to know that. This is point number one. And as I wrap it up, I want to speak to those who may be doubting their faith this morning. Who may be struggling to believe. Who, who have very little assurance. I, I want you to know, if that's you, brother, sister, that Jesus prayed for you in his final prayer on earth. You believe that? He wasn't just praying for his apostles. He says, I pray for them and for all who will come to believe in me through their word. That's you, Jesus. When he was done, right before he went to the cross, he, because he is God, had you in mind. And he said, I pray that they would be protected. I pray that they would be able to persevere. He prayed that you would be under the protection of heaven. So fear not, O you of little faith. Your ability to persevere, your ability to believe, to keep going is not rooted in you. Tiny, little, weak, feeble you. If it was dependent on me to be saved, I would never make it to the end. If it was dependent on you to make it to heaven, you would never get there. Your ability to be rooted and grounded in Christ until he finally takes you home is rooted in Christ himself, not in your stumbling, fumbling, doubting prayers for your own soul. So be encouraged. Jesus has prayed for you. Point number two, the unity of the church. What was point number one? Not sure. I don't remember what I labeled it. Point number two, the unity of the church. Now, let me tell you, before we get into point number two, Uh, The first half of this point is going to be pretty theoretical. We're going to have to explore what Jesus is talking about here at a level that's going to kind of take us up a little bit. We're going to be in the clouds. We're going to be disentangling some complicated ideas. It's going to be just as difficult for me as maybe it is for some of you. It's been really hard for me in my sermon prep this week, but I've worked really hard to, to not make it as complicated for you. I hope I did a good job. But, but the first half is going to be pretty theoretical, and then the second half is going to be very practical. So let me just encourage you to strap on your thinking caps and to be willing to put some intellectual elbow grease into the next little portion of the sermon, and then we're going to get really practical together, okay? So, last week, we saw that one of the things that Jesus is praying for is the unity of his disciples, We saw that in verse 11, and now we see that again in verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus is praying that they, that is all true disciples, not just his apostles, but all true disciples, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what we see here in verse 21 is that Jesus is more than a little concerned with the unity of his followers. He prays, Father, by your grace, through your power, make them one. That is, cause them to be unified. So let's just start off by just being really basic. Just addressing the reality that all Christians are unified. Every person who is a true follower of Jesus, who has truly been regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit, every person who has been born again is one with every other truly born again Christian. Full stop. When you believe the gospel and were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you were united to Jesus. And you were not only united to Jesus, the head, but you were also united to the body, which means that you were united to every other part of his body, which is every other believer. We can just take this deeper. You have the same name as all of your fellow Christians, right? The, the most important thing about you is not your, your first name or your last name or your nickname. It is the name of Christ that you bear. You are Christian. That is your primary identifying marker. And you share that name with every other Christian. Did you hear the way our our brother, uh, Pastor Shane, prayed for us this morning? He said we have more in common with our persecuted brothers and sisters in India, whom we've never met. They're thousands of miles away. They eat different food. They live in a different culture. They speak a different language. They have different colored skin and hair. and And we have more in common with them than we do with our unbelieving co-worker or even our unbelieving parents. Because we bear the same name. The name of Christ. And we have all been baptized into the same body as believers. As a member of this body, we are one with every other member of the body. In the same way that my toes and my hands and my eyes and my bones and my skin are all unified in my body, so too are you unified with every other member of the body of Christ, We might call this, note-takers, a unity of nature. A unity of nature. Or we can switch up the metaphors and say it like this. In the same way that every child is one with his fellow siblings because they are all children of the same parents, we are all one with each other because we all belong to the Father. We have all been according to Ephesians chapter 1, adopted into God's family. Now listen, families fight. Some siblings may try to disown one another in 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 the heat of the moment as passions flare. They might try to say, you're not really my brother. Mom adopted you. But it doesn't change the fact that if we are all true believers, then we are all members of the same family by faith. Commenting on this reality, Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan writer, said this, Some will unchurch and unbrother in a passion. You're not really a Christian. You don't belong here. You're not a part of this family. But ill humors do not alter true relations. We might say that this is a unity of relation, unity of nature, unity of relation. Or we could use another metaphor. In the same way that soldiers are united in their common mission, you are united to your fellow Christians through the cause of the Great Commission, Jesus's final marching orders for your life. If you have a list of the top 10 things that you want to do and be and accomplish in this life, if you belong to Jesus, everything else falls under carry out the Great Commission. Or at least it should. Family, career, education, health, Great Commission, obedience, number one. Everything else way down at the bottom of the list. We are united together in our common mission given to us by our general, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are going to be disagreements, sometimes minor, sometimes major, about how exactly this mission should be carried out In the way that is most faithful, but if your aim in life is to make the name of Jesus great among the nations, then you are one in purpose with every other person whose aim in life it is to make Jesus' name great among the nations. That is a unity of purpose. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the nature of our unity. Last week, we talked about our holiness, and we talked about it being a matter of both position and process. Do you guys remember that? Position, right? To be set apart. It's done. You're set apart. Process. You have to sort of learn how to live that out. You're in the progress, in the process of being sanctified. Well, the same thing here applies to our unity. Our unity is, on the one hand, done. It's accomplished. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he was talking about every good thing that he came to this earth to do, including our unification. That is position. But, on the other hand, our ability to live out the reality of our unity, to manifest our unity clearly and powerfully, That is something that must not only grow, but also be maintained over time. That's process. So in verse 21, when Jesus prays that we would be unified, he says, I pray that they would be unified in the same way that the Father and the Son are unified. Just go back and look there again. Just put put eyes on it. He says, I'm praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. Whew. Do y'all understand that? I studied it all week trying to get to the bottom of it. I, I think I'm 30%. Nah. 15% of the way there. This is, this is. There's a lot to unpack. This is one of those things. Taking it to, to the Lord Jesus on the day when I get to meet him. And I'm like alright. I need you to help me understand this. Because I couldn't get it while I was still in the flesh. But. But I think in this statement, we see something of this simultaneous position and process. Let me try to unpack that for you. Jesus says, I want them to be one just as you and I are one, Father. So how are the Father and the Son one? How are they unified? Well, this is obviously and immediately complicated by the fact that Jesus was not just God, but God in the flesh. But here we go. Let's dive in. On the one hand, Jesus and the Father are completely unified in their very natures. That is, Jesus is fully God and he has been eternally coexistent with the Father since before the foundations of the world. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word has never stopped being God even when the Word came and took on flesh. So in that sense, Jesus and the Father are completely Unified. That's position. It's done. It always has. It's not done. That assumes that it had a beginning. But my human language fails me. On the other hand, Jesus, through the incarnation, Jesus living in the flesh, Jesus in his earthly ministry, is in the constant process of submitting his will and purpose to the Father. That is... He is in the constant process of being unified to God in love and purpose. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard him talk like this. He says, Father, I have come to do your will. Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. That's the process of unity. It's a, it's a, it's a unity, the process of unity in love and obedience. Now let's bring this back to us, because it has to connect to us. Jesus' prayer is that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. In the same way that the Father and the Son are positionally unified in their natures, we believers are positionally unified with each other. How? Through our being in Christ. When we are baptized into Christ, We are partaking of the very nature of God himself together. Now there's more to say about this, but I'm going to come back to this next week. Partially because I just need more time to wrap my mind around it. But we're going to see more of this in verses 24 through 26. The way we come to partake in the nature of God himself is as we partake of his glory and as we partake of his love. If you want to study ahead in verses 24 through 26, do that and come prepared, ready next week. So that's the position. We have been united to God himself, God the Father, through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. And therefore, every person who is sharing that eternally divine nature with God is united to each other. And yet, we believers like Jesus in his earthly ministry are in the process of, of living out this reality of our unity in a fallen world. That's the process. Okay, pause. You guys did really good. I'm so proud of you. I know that was kind of complicated, but let me, let me just show you something. I, my, my fear is that someone would say, oh, Sean, this whole position and process thing when it comes to unity, you're just kind of taking some paradigm that you have in your mind, and you're just coming along and you're laying it over this teaching of Jesus in John 17. Which is a nice way of saying you're just kind of pulling it out of your butt, right? So I'm not saying that. I actually, I I get this from other places in the Bible which I think teach this. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, that is to live, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now listen, this is the key key verse here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And that that word maintain, it's a little softer in the English than it is in the Greek. In the Greek, that word is more like what a wrestler does as he strains in a wrestling match. Essentially, it's to fight for. So we must be eager to maintain in the same way that a wrestler who's trained his whole life to make it to the Olympics and everything now at the last few seconds of this match depends on him getting a takedown on that guy. He strains forward and fights with everything in him to get the takedown so he can win the gold. That is what we are told. We must fight with everything in us to, to have, to keep, to manifest this unity of the spirit. That's process. That's process. Another way you might say this is, this is what is dependent on us and our efforts, fueled by grace though they may be. Then he goes on and he says this, there is one body and one spirit. That's the language of unity. The one body is Christ. The one spirit causing us to dwell in that body is the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, Jesus, one faith, the gospel, one baptism, the Baptist baptism, obviously, and God and Father of all. There's only one God who is over all and in all. So, what you see here is that Paul is grounding this call for us to champion unity, to manifest unity, to maintain unity, to fight for unity. He grounds it in the fact that we are already unified, our positional unity. He says, there's only one gospel, there's only one Lord, there's only one faith, there's only one baptism. You're already unified, now you better fight to show it. You better fight to keep it. You can't let it get away from you. Because you already have it. You know, this this idea of position and process... It's really just a pattern that's found all over Scripture. With salvation, we just call it justification, positional righteousness, and sanctification, growth in righteousness. With eschatology, we call it the already but not yet of the in-breaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, and yet it is still forthcoming. I don't know what we would call it here when it comes to unity, but I know that it is here, the unity of all believers Is an objective reality because of the election and predestination of the Father, because of the death and burial and resurrection of the Son, and because of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is done. And yet, God's word says to us in the church that our unity on some human level must be maintained through our efforts, our humility our gentleness, our patience, our love, all of these things will either reveal the fullness of our unity to a lost and dying world, or the lack of these things will diminish the expression of our unity to a world that very desperately needs to see what love looks like. You know, I love twice in John 17, Jesus says, I pray this for them so that they will know that you sent me. What this means is that there is a missional bent in Jesus's prayer for unity. If we want to be effective for the cause of the Great Commission, we have got to be unified. This is what gives the oomph to our gospel message. What does it mean to say God loves you and he wants to save you and bring you into his family if then we exist as a family in such a way that nobody really wants to be a part of that family because it is all busted up? Now, there is another layer to this unity stuff uh, that we're going to come back to next week. I already said that. I said my manuscript twice. (laughs) I'm having a rough manuscript morning. Okay. Now I told you we were going to be more theoretical in the first half. Let's get more practical in the second half of point two. Let's put some, some teeth on this thing. What does this look like for us to manifest our unity, to maintain our unity? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know what's interesting when Jesus prays that we would be unified if if in the mind of God, our unity is in part maintained and manifested by us and our efforts, that means that one of the things that Jesus was praying for in John 17 was for our ability to do that well. He was praying not only for the ends, but also the means that help us to accomplish the ends. That's what we're going to be talking about now. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now listen, this is a heck of a thing to say. No divisions? None? That you have complete agreement that you be united in the exact same mind and judgment? How is this even possible? Well, I think we can understand this more clearly by talking about what this doesn't mean, what Paul obviously cannot mean here. What Paul cannot mean here is that all Christians must agree about every last detail of doctrine and Christian living. Now, I'm not saying that because, well, it's just a really hard command That we, you know, be completely united, not in any way divided. And because it sounds really hard and really scary, that can't be what he means. That's not why I'm saying this. I'm saying that can't be what he means because of the rest of what he he writes throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. If you read past chapter 1 and you read on into 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, all the way up to... You'll see that Paul is actually pretty content for there to be disagreements in the church. Particularly as Paul begins to teach on matters of conscience... Meat offered to idols, the celebration of holy days, the consumption of alcohol. To make this a little more practical in our day, the consumption of alcohol. Homeschool versus public school. Should we trick-or-treat or not trick-or-treat? Right? These are matters of Christian conscience. And as Paul is teaching about, teaching these Corinthians about matters of the Christian conscience, he says some things just aren't worth fighting over. You have to make your decision And stand before the Lord and understand that every man at the end of the day is going to have to stand before the Lord as his judge. So don't fight over certain things in the life of the church. Okay. Now because he says that, we know that in chapter 1 when he says that you be completely united in judgment, he cannot mean completely united in everything at all times. It wouldn't make sense for him to say, you guys have got to agree about the celebration of holy days. And then to say, well, the celebration of holy days isn't worth fighting over. So what does he mean? I think in chapter 1, what Paul is describing is a unity of disposition. A unity of disposition. I think what Paul is talking about here is attitudinal, which is a fun word to say. When Paul says, let there be no divisions among you, he's talking about a spirit, an attitude, a disposition that says, even if we do disagree... We can disagree about these things in a way that clearly communicates our unity in Christ. Our disagreements need not get in the way of the manifestation of our unity before the eyes of the watching world. Let me give you some examples. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Example number one. I disagree about my brothers and sisters in the PCA when it comes to infant baptism. I disagree with them. They disagree with me. I would say, that's sin. They would look at me and are and, and not bringing children and babies up to be baptized, and they would say, that's sin. It's a very real disagreement. It's not going to be disregarded. It's not going to be swept under the rug. It's not going to be ignored. Nevertheless, there is a way that this church and that church can cooperate for the sake of the gospel that communicates that we are, in fact, on the same team. Team Jesus. Team Jesus. Even though we do have some secondary disagreements, there is far more that we have in common than what separates us. We have a belief in the divine authorship, inerrancy, so on and so forth. Every good thing about the Bible, we believe it together. We believe in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. We have a shared belief about the definition of marriage and family and and, and manhood and womanhood. And I could just keep going down the line. All of the most important things, we have that in common. Therefore, we can relate to one another in such a way that communicates per 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we are completely united in the same mind and judgment. Example number two, a local church example. The elders in our church may be thinking through a particular matter. Female deacons, a budget question, which version of the Bible should we use on a Sunday morning? And as we sit in our elders meeting, we have the conversation, the debate. Well, I think this. Well, I think that. Well, here's my argument for this. Here's my argument against that. And we talk and we talk and we talk until eventually we have to come to a point where we move forward. Maybe that's over the course of several meetings. Now, listen, in a small church like ours with four elders, not that many, it's pretty easy for us to all be on the same page. But let's say one day God is kind and our church maybe has 300 members and then we have 10 elders. What are the odds of us having complete uniformity of thought on the elder board where every time we have to vote on something, all 10 elders completely agree? The odds of that, about zero. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're going to be in violation of what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says? No. We can go forward to the congregation, let's say that there's an elder vote, and One, two elders lose out of 10. What are we going to do? Are we going to come before the congregation and say, all right, here's the deal. We're moving forward with this, but we just want to let you know, Jim and Bob voted no, but they lost. We don't have an accord on this, but the majority wins. So here we go. We're moving forward without Jim and Bob. No, that would be very contra 1 Corinthians 1. What we do is we come forward and we say the elders have decided X, Y, and Z. What does that do? that communicates a spirit of unity and agreement of mind, even though there may not be complete uniformity. This, by the way, is not hypocrisy. It's just the way life works. Mom and dad may disagree on some question pertaining to matters of the household. But when mom and dad sort it all out, even if, let's say, mom's not fully on board, when mom and dad sit down with the kids... Dad doesn't throw mom under the bus and say, you know, your mother was against this, but I want to give you more toys for Christmas, so that's what we're going to (laughs) do. No. What do you do? You say, hey, this is what we've decided to do as a family, right? There's not complete agreement, but there is unity being presented to the children, the watching world. A business board makes a decision. They present a unified front to the shareholders or the employees, no matter how much debate may have taken place behind closed doors. This is how life works. But here's the thing, and this is very important. Christians should be able to do this better than anyone. Because our love is greater, our bond is stronger, our humility should be deeper, and our mission is more important than anything else in the world. You see this idea in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What he's prescribing for them is a disposition of unity, not a complete agreement in all matters pertaining to life and doctrine. You see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. (laughs) Listen, you have no idea how important this understanding of unity has been in the life of this church. Maybe some of you have an idea. If you're a visitor, let me just let you know. Our church weathered the storm of 2020 and 2021 better than a lot of churches. I'm not saying that to brag, kind of, (laughs) caught myself mid-sentence there. I am a proud father of this church. But I mean, in all seriousness, that's just owing to God's grace and kindness towards us. But think about what it was like to go through 2020 as a local church. Race and policing, masks and vaccines, presidents and elections. Satan was bombarding the church. If we would have thought that real biblical unity meant that we had to agree, 100% agree about all of those things at all times, we never would have made it. Even amongst the elders, there wasn't complete agreement about all of these things all of the time. The unity that we had as a church was, it's perfectly fine for you to have your strong convictions, and I'm going to have my strong convictions, and maybe... Maybe you're not even going to have any convictions at all, but the most important thing is that we are going to be convicted to be one as a body. We will together face this storm. We will not be torn apart by this season of attack from Satan. Uh, The only reason our church made it through 2020 is because Jesus prayed for us 2,000 years ago that we would. Now, let's talk a little bit about what unity is is not what what is Jesus praying for in John 17 well we'll get there by talking about what he's not praying for the first thing that he's not praying for is complete uniformity now I kind of have already been talking about that for like the last 10 minutes but I want to say it I want to turn it over in our minds just one more time Remember, the the biblical teaching on unity does not equal a call for complete uniformity. Complete uniformity in the church, this side of heaven, does not exist. It has never existed. It will never exist. You can say that I'm just denying the power of God. Could be, or I'm just, you know, painfully aware of 2,000 years of church history. Complete uniformity does not exist. It will not exist this side of heaven. And as a matter of fact, if complete uniformity were to exist in the church, unity itself would lose all of its power. If complete uniformity existed, unity itself would lose all of its power. What do I mean by that? Just think about it. The power of our witness that comes to the lost and dying world through our unity is... A demonstration of our ability to love one another and to be united to one another and to be for one another, even in spite of our disagreements. That's what's so powerful. You know, it's not hard to love people that you agree with on everything. Oh, you're a Republican? I'm a Republican. Do you want to hang out? And then you're hanging out and you're like, wait a second, you like Alabama football? I like Alabama football. This is crazy. And then you start talking about the Bible, and you're like, oh, you're a Calvinist? I'm a Calvinist. This is a match made in heaven. We're going to be the best friends. It's going to be so easy for us to get along and hang out. Yeah, duh. It is much more difficult, on the other hand, to love and to serve those with sometimes, sometimes we want to strangle because they're so wrong. And we're so right. I think everyone should have been masked up. I think no one should have been masked up. And yet here we all, all together, loving and serving each other. That is the power of our testimony. And it is a very powerful testimony. And if we had complete uniformity at all times, about all things, we would lose that power. Let me just give you one example uh, I'm, again, to kind of talking theoretical. Let me put some teeth on this, give you an example of what it means to have unity over uniformity. Uh, I'm a cessationist, which means that I don't think that the sign gifts of speaking in tongues and prophecy continue on into our own day. Now, you may not agree with me in that. Maybe you sat through what I taught on a Wednesday night, or you've heard some sermon application, and you've just thought to yourself... Eh, I'm just unconvinced by Sean's argument. I do think that the sign gifts continue today. Well, fantastic, friend. That's a great opportunity for you to display unity, even though there is not complete doctrinal uniformity in our church. And the way that you do that is by submitting to the elders of the church and not standing up and speaking in tongues, even if you really, really want to. Now, Am I saying that as a member of our church you are free to believe whatever you want and be a member for the sake of unity? Of course not. Of course not. Every member who joins our church signs our Sixth Avenue Statement of Faith which sets a doctrinal threshold for our unity as a local church. If you go and you look at our Statement of Faith, you can look at it online or you can look at it in our Sunday School room, you'll see that we have two kinds of things in that Statement of Faith. Number one, all the stuff that we think you need to believe in order to be a Christian. Right? We're just talking about the basics. The Bible is true and it's from God himself. Jesus died as a penal substitutionary atonement for our sins. The nature of the Trinity. The dual natures of Christ. So on and so forth. And then the second thing you'll find in that statement of faith is just what we need to do in order to be... To do, uh, excuse me. What you need to believe in order for us to do life together. So you may disagree with me about infant baptism... But you can't join our church if you disagree, because it's just going to be really hard for us to do life together. You're going to have a baby. You're going to be so excited to get your baby baptized. You're going to bring the baby to me. I'm going to swat him away. No, I wouldn't do that. But I will say, oh, brother, sister, I love you, but I can't baptize your baby because I think that's sin. All right, so you, we need to be on the same page about certain things. Even though you can be a Christian, we just can't really do life together. If you think that there should be female pastors, and I don't think that there should be female pastors, ah, we're just going to not be able to live in the same church together. Now, listen, what you won't find in our statement of faith is anything pertaining to all millennialism versus dispensationalism. You won't even find a lot about Calvinism versus Arminianism, even though it is my great hope that every member of this church has a very big reformed view of grace. You won't find anything about continuationism versus cessationism. Why? Because even though I would like for us to all be on the same page about that, you don't have to agree with me about spiritual gifts in order to be a member of this church, in order for us to be unified, in order for us to love and serve one another. So unity... Not uniformity. That's subpoint number one for point two. Subpoint number two Christian unity is not necessarily the same thing as institutional unity. It's not necessarily the same thing as institutional unity. The Roman Catholic Church loves to point at the hundreds of Protestant denominations. And thousands of independent Protestant churches and say, just look at you guys. No unity, full of schism, splintered, shattered into a a thousand pieces. In contrast, they will point to their hierarchical superstructure of a church. And they will say, now listen, this, this is unity. And they say this because in their minds, unity must be structural institutional, visible, in the same way that like a nation state must have a visible structural uh, institutional unity. But here's what they miss. Per Jesus in John 17 and a thousand other scriptures in the Bible, the thing that unifies Christians is not our mutual submission to the Bishop of Rome Or anything else like that. But rather our shared belief in the gospel. That is what unifies us. Isn't it ironic then. That the so-called church. That may seem to be the most unified in the eyes of the watching world. Because it has a robust institutional structure. Is actually primarily mainly united in its Rejection of the gospel. And the church that may seem to be most splintered in the eyes of the watching world is actually most unified due to our shared belief in the gospel. Subpoint number three there is no unity with those who reject the truth of God's word, though they may call themselves Christians. There is no unity. With those who reject the truth of God's word, though they may call themselves Christians. Now, when I say they reject the truth of God's word, I don't mean that they're against vaccines and I'm pro-vaccines. And I think scripture says that I should do one and you should do the other. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I mean. First, let me say this. Uh, This 3rd subpoint is necessary in a sermon like this because far too often, cries for unity have served as covers for sin and heresy. Satan has invaded the church and then put sin into the church, put lies into the church that are going to lead people to hell. And then when somebody points that out and says, hey, we got we to do something about this. We got to get rid of this. This is bad. Satan will train naive Christians or even wolves amongst the sheep to rise up and say, you can't do that. Unity. As if the sin and the heresy wasn't the thing that's causing the disunity in the first place. Going back to our Roman Catholic friends. They claim the name of Jesus. And so do we. And yet, if you believe the Roman Catholic gospel, I cannot have true spiritual unity with you. Why? Because the Roman Catholic gospel denies, utterly rejects, the fancy word is anathematizes. That is, It says that it's under a curse. It denies and rejects the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, under the authority of Scripture alone. My only hope in this life is the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, under the authority of God's word alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you anathematize that gospel, I can't have unity with you. You say I'm under a curse. I say you're under a curse. One day God's going to sort it out. But one thing is for sure in the meantime, we cannot coexist as if we are on the same team. A house divided cannot fall, uh, will fall, cannot stand. When the gospel was recovered during the period of the Reformation, our forefathers, the reformers, they found it necessary to leave the Catholic Church for the sake of gospel fidelity. They did so over accusations of schism. What about unity? You're you're tearing the church apart. Unity at all costs. That's what their opponents would cry. Friends, no. Not unity at all costs. That, That doesn't even make sense. If all costs means accepting heresy, it means you're accepting the thing that is creating disunity. Or let's consider our Mormon friends. Our Mormon fl- friends claim the name of Jesus. I remember I was in the army with a guy. He was a full-throated, whole-hearted, fervently practicing Mormon. And I would try to talk to him about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith. And he would just say, hey, man, listen, don't worry about that. We're all on Team Jesus, you know. We're all on Team Jesus. And I would say, uh, no, friend, we're not. I want us to be, I really do, but we're not. And he would say, well, why is that? And I would say, well, because it seems to me like you reject the gospel at every significant point. When I talk about scripture, you reject scripture and then you try to add to scripture or we move over and we start talking about the nature of God. You have a, a, a really messed up doctrine of God or, or heaven and hell or the deity of Christ or the nature of salvation Finally, I would, just, I would just say to him, friend, you call yourself a Christian, but you reject every core tenet of the gospel. You have denied what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. My final word to him as he was preparing to go out and be a Mormon missionary was, friend, I really believe that if Jesus was standing here today before you and he heard you express what you believe to be the true core gospel of Jesus Christ he would say why have you rejected my word and yet I've spoken with a number of other mission missionaries and elders in the church of the latter-day saints who talk just like my friend used to talk to me in the army he would say we are one in Christ and I would say friend the only kind of unity that we can have is unity in the truth Now, you've probably noticed that this whole unity thing is a very delicate balancing act. I mean, I essentially spent like a third of this morning's sermon encouraging you to like set aside petty differences and to be unified. But then I spent like the last five to ten minutes, probably closer to 15, telling you that there are some things that we cannot agree to set aside because we care about unity so much. It is a delicate balancing act. This is why we talk so much about theological triage in our church. Theological triage tells us that not every hill is a hill worth dying on. It tells us that we will be utterly ineffective if we die on every anthill we encounter. Nevertheless, theological triage also tells us that there are some hills worth dying on and we must for the sake of gospel unity, be prepared to die on those hills if the day comes. So how do we know which hills are which? The difference between an anthill and an enemy hill. Well, doing good, careful, biblical triage. I'm not going to go into all of what theological triage is. I've done that like 15 times from this pulpit. If you have more questions about that or you want to like study it more, I have a book for you. I, I can recommend it to you, give it to you, read it, study it, and then maybe we can get together and talk about it. So let me wrap up this last subpoint by saying this. Scripture tells us that there are matters of first importance upon which we may not agree to disagree, especially for the sake of unity. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What unity can there be found between Jesus Christ and the Antichrist? What oneness can God have with Satan? Can there be any true unity between children and those who hate and vilify their parents and their name and their values? Can soldiers ever be one with those who hate their constitution, their homeland, their generals, their way of life? It would be nice if all people everywhere who claimed the name of Jesus actually believed in his word. It would be nice if there were no apparent division in the church whatsoever. But that is not the world that we live in. And as a matter of fact, it is not the world that God has designed. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, There must be divisions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. In closing, I want to end the sermon with an invitation to unity and an appeal to unity. So first, consider the invitation. Friends, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that you are still united to something, to someone. But you are not united to God. The only way to have unity with God and his family is to believe in his son's finished work on the cross. Sin has broken humanity apart. First, it has torn us apart from the unity that we should have had with our Father, our God, our Maker, the one who loves us and has given us every good thing. Sin has just torn that apart. Now there is disunity between us and our Father. And then human beings, we're supposed to be working together, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another. We should be living in peace with one another. And sin has destroyed that unity as well. And God's solution to this problem is to send his son to absorb the penalty for that sin on himself and then therefore reconcile all men back together to God and to each other in his son's body on the cross. Now, if you are not unified to God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are, you are unified. You are one with Satan. You are one with the powers of darkness You are lost. Your family is all those who are outside of the household of God. And your eternal destination is to not go home and be in the Father's mansion forever. Your destiny is to be separated from God and cast into the outer darkness. The only thing that will unify you for all of eternity will be the unity that you have in your utter rejection of God and your rebellion against his love. But Christ has offered you a better way. He has invited you back to himself to mend those fences, to to fix that broken relationship. And he's calling you to come and join his family today by faith. And then finally for the church, an appeal for unity. This is going to be really profound. You ready? Really profound. We have to fight for unity. Sean, you already said that. Yeah, I know. I just wanted to say it again. We have got to fight for unity. Our unity gives power to the word that we proclaim. And our words are what we use to communicate his word. And his word is what the world needs to hear in order to be saved. Brothers and sisters, our unity is mission essential. We can get by... And still complete the mission by God's grace without complete agreement about secondary matters of doctrine. And we can get by and still accomplish the mission by his grace without complete agreement on matters of conscience. And we can get by and still complete the mission without agreement, complete agreement in questions of tactics and strategy. But we cannot get by without true spirit-wrought gospel unity. So, fight for that unity knowing that ultimately your ability to fight is backed by the prayer that Jesus prayed for you 2,000 years ago in John 17. Let's pray. Father, your word is the truth, and the truth of your word can set us free. We pray that it has this morning freed us from sin and selfishness and made us slaves to your son, Jesus Christ with whom we will be one forever. Amen.